modern culture has decided that natural law does not apply to us. But it didn't happen before. Right. This is a new thing. All of this thinking is new. This right. is not who human beings are. This is what our culture is. Hey folks, welcome to Farm On, the podcast where we speak with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement. I'm your host, Joe Phillips. And a few years ago, I was a terrible gardener. I'm not a great gardener now, but a few years ago, I straight up sucked. And so I went to the Chicago Public Library and start, tried to educate myself and started perusing the gardening section. And as I was looking up uh, books on seeds and compost and whatnot, I stumbled along this little green book with a cool die-cut cover of a fist holding a green flag, and it's called The One Straw Revolution by a fellow named Masanobu Fukuoka. So I thought, hmm, sounds curious, I'll flip it open to a random page, and I discovered a little passage like this. Nature, as grasped by scientific knowledge, is a nature which has been destroyed. It is a ghost possessing a skeleton, but no soul. Nature, as grasped by philosophical knowledge, is a theory created out of human speculation. A ghost with a soul, but no structure. And anyway, this little green book has become uh, a really a manifesto beloved by so many um, permaculturists and natural farmers and people who want a sort of philosophical uh, driving force to this work. And really, no one does it more um, with more authority than Fukuoka for sure. And the person who's responsible for bringing this little book to us is none other than today's guest, Larry Korn. Larry lived with Fukuoka for a couple years um, at his farm in Japan. He uh, learned how this method of natural farming from the sensei, Fukuoka, and he also was, became fluent in Japanese and was fluent enough to be able to translate uh, Fukuoka's book from its native Japanese. He brought it back to the States, and now we are blessed to have it. Um, he also edited what I think is arguably just as fine a book called Sowing Seeds in the Desert, where Fukuoka travels the globe um, sharing his philosophy and basically... Um, offering solutions for world hunger, world famine, and the worldwide destruction of our habitat simply by sowing seeds in places that people thought they couldn't grow food. But before Fukuoka became kind of the godfather of permaculture and natural farming, he was a working stiff and a scientist and uh, was partying a little too much and he nearly died from pneumonia. And it was about that time that he had his own awakening where he um, basically uh, had a transcendental experience where he saw the reality of nature and it spoke to him in a way that didn't use words but just spoke to his true being. Um, Larry Korn, today's guest, also had a similar experience while he was in Japan. And I open up our talk by asking him about that. So let's get into it. This is my talk with Larry Korn from his home in Ashland, Oregon. Hope you enjoy. If you don't mind, I wanted to read just a really short passage from your book called One Straw Revolutionary. 
the philosophy and work of Masunobu Fukuoka. And uh, I'll just read this and you can just kind of see what it brings up for you. Okay. So you wrote that. One evening I walked to the fields after dinner. The soil, which was almost pure volcanic ash, sparkled in the moonlight. The top of the volcano was glowing an eerie red, getting brighter and then dimmer, as if the mountain were breathing. Ontake-san was not in full voice that night. It was only rumbling, kind of a humming to itself. I looked out at the half-planted field of sweet potatoes and could hear the rustling of the bamboo in the wind. I stood quietly for a moment and took it all in. Then the soil spoke to me. From then until now, everything I've done has involved plants and soil in one way or another, a gift I could never have expected or imagined. So um, I highlighted that passage when I read it because it reminded me a lot of Fukuoka's own kind of uh, yeah. awakening, you know. So what can you, what is that? First of all, that's a that was a while back. You were twenty six at the time, I guess. Something so I, I was in my early twenties. Yeah, and and that was the moment when the similarity. I can't imagine what Fukuoka's experience must have been like. Right. Um, you know, I just can't. But but for me, in my life, mm-hmm. uh, I I have to. To give you a little background, that I grew up in Los Angeles, mm. and I, I never even, you know, uh, it, I had a nice, happy childhood, and I sure. had a lot of friends and interacted socially, but I didn't ha- have any connection with the uh, natural world. Mm. I, I did never had. I didn't even step in. I didn't even step into a vegetable garden until I was about twenty-three or twenty-four years old. Mm. And and to, to me, it was like there was this human drama, and then the the, the then nature was just like a movie set or mm-hmm. wallpaper or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And so this moment, this moment was when I saw the world as it is mm-hmm. um, for the first time, and that's a similarity to Fukuoka's. Uh, experience mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and and there's been a couple of other people I've noticed have uh, written about uh, or I've spoken to them about the same sort of experience of a woman named Katrina Blair who was one of these people that can, can just walk out into the uh, into the forest and, mm-hmm. and she's with her family and she doesn't need to take a backpack or anything she can just she knows ex- everything about wild crafting mm-hmm. and she had an experience when she was seven years old that was similar and Mary Reynolds describes an experience that was similar when she was about six or seven years old mm, the Irish the so, Irish author you were mentioning you know she was you know went into a into a fairy circle Mm. You know, which the, they're, they're all over the place in mm-hmm. Ireland, but this was surrounded by a hedge of many different types of plants. Mm-hmm. And then she could hear all the plants talking to her, and mm-hmm. everybody wanted her attention, and they were saying, Hi, Mary, and so forth. <laughs> so, but for me, it was the soil. And the soil, boy, you know, it's not like mm-hmm. it was words, it was just a feeling. Mm-hmm inside but it was so clear mm-hmm. and you had so studied clear. soil at um uc berkeley before that right 
No, after that. That's uh, okay. my first connection with soil. And then when I, I, I had two, two trips to Japan, both of them were about two years long. Mm-hmm. And the first one, I was living on communes and hitchhiking around. And, and the, I did have that great experience on Suwanosei Island, the volcanic island. Mm-hmm. Then I went back to the United States and I went back to Berkeley. And then I studied soil science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my friends, I, I had a, I had a really nice community of friends who I met in Kyoto when I first came to Japan, mm. and, and and they um, rented a farmhouse with about two acres of land in the mountains north of Kyoto mm. while I was studying soil science, and they said, "Hey, we're going to be farmers. Why don't you come and join us?" And I said, "Wonderful," <laughs> and and then I went back. And then, you know, I'd heard about San in, uh, from, and in the communes. Fukuoka-san. Really. Uh, yeah, actually mm-hmm. his title would be Fukuoka-sensei because he is mm-hmm. a teacher. Mm-hmm, the teacher. Yeah. Part of the reason that I wrote the book was to make the, the nat- Fukuoka-san's natural farming um, uh, way of seeing the world accessible Westerners, mm-hmm. because you know it's been I've been doing this for a long time, trying to explain the natural farming uh, point of view, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, he, Fukuoka-san explained it using his Asian cultural frame of reference, yeah. which involves terms like no mind mm-hmm. and non-discriminating understanding, and mm-hmm. terms that are very difficult, if not meaningless, to Westerners. Mm-hmm. Or and, emptiness and is another another kind of Eastern word, word, that emptiness. Emptiness, well, Mu, mm-hmm. that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in my, you know, I... I one of the reasons I wrote the book was to to kind of strip my explanation of most of that mm-hmm. and and explain it just in in a straightforward way. And also, I finally realized that for me, you know, it took me. I didn't understand this right from the beginning. This right. took me many years, and it's an ongoing process. Yeah. But about ten years ago, it dawned on me that what that natural farming, what Fukuoka-san, I'm saying Fukuoka-san, that's like Mr. Fukuoka. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, what he was doing was um, virtually identical to what indigenous people were doing all over the world mm-hmm. until about eight or 10,000 years ago. And it's almost and, like, yeah. a, it, it almost sounds like hunter-gatherer type of uh, existence. Well, no, it was much more sophisticated than mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. You know, this was uh, maybe hunter-gatherer was in some places, but maybe earlier in the human development for, for the last, you know, Homo sapiens, which is all the people who live now are Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. There, there were earlier forms of humans, but now we're all Homo sapiens. And about 70,000 years ago, migrated out of Africa and mm-hmm. traveled to all over the world and then settled down in, in certain areas. And they lived there for 10,000 generations mm-hmm. in the same place. Mm-hmm. Let's say 10,000, you know, there's maybe, maybe more. And, and then consciousness, maybe, you know, 
Well, Homo sapiens arose about 200,000 years ago, consciousness about, let's say, 100,000 years ago, mm -hmm. 150,000. Now we're going way back. <laughs> way back, right. yeah. But then people spread out all over the world. They lived in the same place, mm -hmm. and they did they, – they interacted with the landscape, and they did things, and they listened for answers, and they, were, and they saw how the animals lived, and they saw, you know, the, the, the seasons, and how what they did in the landscape, how nature gave them response, mm -hmm. and they saw what they did that made the area more diverse and more abundant, mm -hmm. and then they, and they passed that information down to succeeding generations. And that's agriculture. And was agriculture was the first culture, right? Well, this was, you know, the, the, it's, it's not quite agriculture, mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the best term that I've come across is uh, there's a woman, Kat Anderson, who wrote the, by far the best book ever on how uh, indigenous people saw the world and interacted with the landscape in hmm. great detail. Mm -hmm. It's it's focuses on the in, on the Indians in California, but she referred to it as tending the wild. Okay. Because if you say you know, steward is you know stewarded or mm -hmm. managed or that that involves that implies control and there was no control. Mm -hmm. It was working with the landscape to do the things. That provided more abundance, mm -hmm. and and they were careful, of course, not to um, take too much. Anything. Yeah, to do anything mm -hmm. that would keep uh, the nature keep nature from continuing to provide the things that they needed. Mm -hmm. It was all literally growing on trees, and they were and they were they were grateful, right? And they were humble. Well, it's interesting that uh, natural farming, which is Fukuoka's method, or I guess he calls it his methodless method, or his uh, yeah. the uh, program that has no structure, you know. But it's right. it's so interesting that his story was uh, coming at it as a as a scientist, and then having to unlearn all of the kind of conventional farming techniques by making years of mistakes. And discovering, in a way, just what you're talking about, like how people used to live before they tried to control everything. So um, can you talk about that, like what that process was like as far as you understand it, like that sort of uh, unlearning to get back to that, that way of agriculture? When the people separated themselves from nature they they um, by thinking they were better mm -hmm. and they, they were godlike mm -hmm. like we do today essentially mm -hmm. um, they cut themselves off from the knowledge of you know it, it, they couldn't access using animals as teachers or using the seasons and the everything and and then they were kind of on their own right. for the first time Right. And, and and then they had to rely on their intellect and mm -hmm. figure things out mm -hmm. instead of using um, intuition. And so, and aren't they creating problems too? As they're trying to figure things out, they're sort of creating new problems to solve. That was part of Fukuoka's uh, basic understanding that 
day when he was 25 and had mm-hmm. that experience was that, um, that, the, that the world is ideally arranged just as it is. Mm-hmm. And everything is completely interrelated. And people think somehow, modern people, mm-hmm. and when I say modern, I mean the last like 8,000 years, mm-hmm. which is essentially, essentially what people consider human history. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Um, but, A but longer view people, here. Yeah. When people try to improve, improve upon nature or to use nature strictly for human benefit, then mm-hmm. of course there's no other possible outcome. Mm-hmm. Than creating problems, and then he because and then like it creates what, uh, what what was it Fukuoka calls it like the octopus or something like the giant octopus of something. Yeah, no, he had that. He that has was a that metaphor about, for that. That was more about economics, but oh, okay. but, but he had a couple of really good uh, uh, good uh, uh, ways of explaining that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but the, we we create. One problem, you know, and then we create a problem, and then we go try to solve that problem mm-hmm. by using the same way of thinking that we're going to figure this out using right. our intellect. Right. And then that creates a greater problem, a greater problem. And let's see, there's a couple of them, but one of them is, you know, it's it's like somebody who uh, who who climbs up on his on the roof of his house and mm-hmm. and stomps on the on the tiles mm-hmm. and. And, and creates a you know a, a problem that the roof is leaking. <laughs> right. And then he goes up and figures out how to fix it, and he goes, right. and then he goes, oh look what I've done! I've managed <laughs> a great repair. <laughs> you know, I lived for a couple of years with six or eight other students in in the little huts of his uh, right. in his orchard. He had a fifteen-acre citrus orchard, and uh, we lived in huts. And what we did when we went out to uh, relieve ourselves mm-hmm. we would you know kind of do a camping thing we dig a little hole and poop yeah and and he said you know that as long as there's not that many people and it's just scattered around it's ideal because nature has this fantastic way of cleaning things oh, and sure. it's called mainly microorganisms but also pigs will eat human poop and then the birds will come and die and within five or six days it's gone Right. As long as it's you're not talking about a city of 100,000 people doing that no, or something. That's the problem. Right. That when you get too many people packed together because because we think of ourselves as gods that we think that we can mainly what it is is that that we we believe that we can we can uh, uh, disregard natural law mm-hmm. just with impunity mm-hmm. without any consequences. Mm-hmm. And and so that is I think Probably the you know native people would oh they would never do that. Um, mm-hmm. The only time well I can think of a few places when when they did I mean the little the tribes would never do that. Right. They exceed their carrying capacity. But but when you get groups like the let's call let's say the Anasazi or the um, uh, the the Mayans mm-hmm. where they created these large. Uh, civilizations, mm-hmm. this cities, and, yeah. got, and then they got stratified society, and you got all these people gathered together, mm-hmm. and those are the ones that failed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's of course what I just described: the stratified society, the have and the have-nots, the standing armies, the the diseases, you know, and and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
those are the characteristics of our modern culture. Right. None of those things taxes. None of those things existed before uh, before this change of heart. You know, um, a while back you mentioned the the huts that you were living in on Fukuoka's farm, and it really is funny to see the huts because. Uh, I think most people, if they saw kind of the conditions that you were living in, they would think like, you know, that you were, you know, some sort of servitude or something or that some sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, slave labor kind of thing because it's really just like dirt and a, and some uh, a shack, you know, and the chicken, you said the chickens were wandering in and out. and But I think the interesting thing about that is the way you framed it as uh, – it was almost like a teaching moment or a teaching method of Fukuoka's to just make sure that everyone knew that they were just part of nature, that just because they're going inside doesn't mean that they're not still intimately involved with the cycles and the biology and everything that's happening um, outside, right outside in the gardens. So uh, what was that? I mean... What was that experience like? Was it hard for you to live that way? Was well, it? That was the most. I think that was the most luxurious and most comfortable place I ever lived in my entire life. <laughs> Talk you know, about that. Wake yeah. up and I mean, you're connected. You're connected directly mm-hmm. with where you live, mm-hmm. and and the 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 orchard itself, the way it was designed with him just scattering seeds all over the place and he let nature design the orchard mm-hmm. and and it was uh, you know you walked out and you could feel that this was nature's expression mm-hmm. and not not something that that was created by human will mm-hmm. and 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 you had water right there and you had a pond to swim in and you had chickens and ducks and wildlife running around all the food you needed you just pick it right off the tree what could be better than that yeah no traffic you know nobody who's too busy to talk to you paradise (laughs) and but it was to me it was and to the other people who were living there it was but not to everybody Mm -hmm. i mean it's to the six or seven of us while i was there that's about six or seven people formed this core a couple of years Mm mm-hmm and then other people would come, and they would find it very uncomfortable. Right. Because for one thing, they would they didn't know how to work for an entire day, which is something that I had to learn. Right. Um, but I when I first came to Japan, and it, it was very quiet, and it was very you know not stimulating as the cities, and mm-hmm. they're not particularly interested in agriculture. Those people would stay for a week or so and leave. But I, I'm just thinking back now to the commune, several of the communes, but especially the one on Suwanosei Island with the volcano and where I, mm. you know, uh, Had the you know, first got a yeah. message, got a message from the soil. And and com- compared to Suwanosei and the way, that, the really primitive way that we lived there, Fukuoka's farm was like, I don't know, Club Med or something like that. It's like a resort. <laughs> so it's all relative. <laughs> Honestly, it is. Yeah. No, I didn't feel. I, I Yeah, I, I, it, it was wonderful. So you must Absolutely. be living really, really high times right now. You've got, I'm assuming you have a flush toilet and hot water where you are. And, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, drive my, I drive a truck. Right. And I just, um, you know, this is something that, is, is difficult for everyone who thinks the way 
I'm saying we, I'm just assuming mm-hmm. that people who are listening to this are um, interested in um, living closer to the earth and, and being more self-sufficient and not mm-hmm. needing fossil fuels so much and all of those things. Right. Um, but, but we all, you know, the, the whole landscape, the political, the social, the economic landscape has been groomed for the society to serve the goals, the goals <laughs> of the modern culture, which is like expansion and, uh, you know, just, I don't know, there's a number of them. Um, well, Fukuoka said in one of the quotes I wrote down was, whoever controls the petroleum controls the world's food supply. And how and uh, he understood intimately how the two were so, you know, intertwined. Yeah, I know. It's amazing that he was so in touch with, you know, if you read the One Star Revolution right off the bat and then also throwing seeds in the desert, you see that he was really tuned into what was going on in the world. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and when we went around California, we were driving in a car. And so it's so hard to avoid that. Because right. the conditions just make it impossible. So you just have to kind of go easy on yourself, I think. Right. And, uh, and, and do it as little as possible and work towards the new, the new way. <laughs> There's a hilarious moment, and I think it's in your book, One Straw Revolutionary, where uh, you're in California and <clears throat> going around and, you know, he had, he had, it sounded like he assimilated into some of the cities like Berkeley and different areas pretty well. But then at some point you, he sees a leaf blower or he sees a guy using a leaf blower, which I laughed because I mean, there's nothing more obnoxious than the sound of a leaf blower and not not only the sound of it, but just like the thought that, that to use that obnoxious machine instead of a broom, which is a beautiful thing to use a broom to sweep some leaves or whatever, you yeah, know, but... The, 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 the irony was, is not the irony, it's just, uh-huh. so it was a leaf blower, but it was astroturf, it wasn't even a lawn, <laughs> it was a plastic lawn. Oh, that's great. That that's so. really the icing on the cake. But I think his <laughs> comment, his comment in the book was, let's just pretend that we didn't see that. Uh-huh. Like he couldn't even process that as a yeah. thing. And it sounds like when he was traveling around with you as a first time, you know, traveler in the US, you know, he'd been in Japan his whole life, I'm guessing, that um he wasn't I mean, even though he was meeting all these important people who really respected him, he wasn't shy about um pointing out kind of glaring problems with uh with uh, American society or with um I don't know, lawn culture was another thing that he sort of attacked, which I think is really brave. It's, I mean, you you know, Americans are very attached to their to their grass lawns and Yeah, you you can't you can't stop a person like Fukuoka on from speaking his mind, you know, because mm-hmm. he's such an individualist. It's like Bill Mollison was that way. Mm-hmm. What's his name out in Austria? Uh Sepp Holzer. Sepp Holzer. Is that way mm-hmm. yeah, he's a permaculture fellow mm-hmm. not exactly but you know but some of these people who have ideas that are so different from the modern culture mm-hmm. they they keep coming up against people that doubt them or for one reason or another want them to go away or want to prove them wrong mm-hmm. and Fukuoka-san over the years is partly just who he was right. he's a very stubborn person he was very much like he kind of reminded me of a 
goat, actually, and it kind of looked like a goat. It's actually. funny because I keep goats now, and I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Because if they decide they want to do something, who That's are you it. to stop? <laughs> you're not going to so, stop them. So I'll tell you a couple of funny stories about that. Um, yeah, so told people in California that it's the way that they've treated the land that's turning California into a desert. Right. And they said, oh, no, no, it's the climate. But he called like he saw it. Mm-hmm. And, and then when he went to, there's that story, remember, we went to the Rodale uh, Press. Right, compost, to, right. And had, had lunch, we, we had lunch together with uh, Robert Rodale. Yeah. And, and all he wanted to talk about was um, how, you know, you don't have to make compost, you know. Right. And, <laughs> and do you and think he was picking the, up on, do you think he was picking up on the, on the fact that uh, Rodale had volumes of books already written about how to make oh, he, compost? Oh, God, come on. He, he <laughs> was so knowledgeable. He knew exactly what Rodale represented and what mm-hmm. they were, which was the international leader of the organic farming movement. Right. And that is based on the, you know, um, um, F.H. King and uh, Sir Albert Howard, two hmm. Western um, scientists who, who went to Asia and they saw the way that the Asian people hmm. were managing to keep this. They saw the importance of organic matter in the soil. And if you plow, you burn out the organic matter. Mm-hmm. So they, the, the cultures for uh, 2,000 years... Mm-hmm involved making compost that's the way that they put the organic matter back in isn't that interesting well they're working their butts off yeah to first to plow which is hard enough and then to make the compost that they needed to keep to produce enough food to keep the soil healthy it's so interesting and and yet that's what you know the rodale um people yeah that is organic farming. So, yeah, that was their and bread and butter. <laughs> he knew all of that. And he says, you know, there's an easier way. Right. All you have to do is scatter seeds right. and let the plants do the work and, and just do a permanent ground cover of soil-building plants, including white clover, you know, and then you don't have to make compost because the, the ground cover is making compost right there in the ground. You don't have to gather the stuff up, and he said, especially on large areas. You know, they, well, he's a sensei. Nobody says anything to a sensei. <laughs> right. And, and he, also had the el- he also had the, the, uh, the seniority, right? I mean, by that point, he was getting up there in age, so. Well, at that time, he was about, he wasn't even 70. Oh, okay. Shoot, when he, when he went to, I'm, shoot, I'm almost 70. Okay. But, but, so when he went to the United States, he was 66 or 70. Mm-hmm. The first time, mm-hmm. and which is when he met the Rodale. Then he went to Europe, and he was talking about how, you know, it looks beautiful with all the trees, Western Europe, he's talking about. And, right. And, but if you look at the soil, you see, well, for one thing, you see that it's a, not a diverse forest, it's a monoculture, mm-hmm. which was a German idea, you know, a long time ago, forestry, like in the 1500s, 1600s. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, they do that in Japan, too. Right. But anyway... He said it's really run down the diversity and also the quality of the soil. So he, he gave a talk to people who were, it was like the Cattle, Cattle Growers Association, uh-huh. something in Europe, the equivalent to that. Right, right. And he referred to Euro- Europe 
as an overgrazed and eroded cattle ranch. You're <laughs> all right. Europe. He's not making too many friends in that crowd. And then when he went to India, he's 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 telling them, you know, you, you got to do something about these holy cows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just saying, just started me <laughs> off on this thing about he was I attacking would say religion. He's he yeah. wasn't consciously irreverent. He was just speaking his mind. Well, and don't you, I mean, it just seems like reading One Straw Revolution, which I've read it several times. In fact, every time I um, meet somebody who hasn't read it, I end up giving my copy away. So I have all these <laughs> copies out there that have notes in them, and I'm kicking myself for not just buying them a <laughs> fresh copy because now I don't have my notes. But um, it, it's it's just an amazing a manifesto really and the thing about his philosophy that strikes me is how precise it is you know how much it just cuts right to the to the core issues that you're talking about and uh, knowing the very little that i do know about um zen buddhism and and that type of discipline it's also very laser precise you know it's very very good at just honing in on the the issue under the issue under the issue you know the thing that's the that's kind of central to it so do you do you feel that um his his spiritual um i guess i don't know uh perspective was what kind of guided that kind of i don't know boldness or or honesty no, I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> no. But, but he, I don't. I don't. I think it okay. was his personality. Okay. And the fact that people were trying to prove him wrong mm-hmm. from the day he started mm-hmm. and all the time that that he, that he developed a kind of, he became a kind of, had a, to, took a defensive stance. Mm-hmm. He was kind of an underdog in that Almost all way. the time. Yeah. It was like, and, and he, you know, the, the uh, when he came, but when he came, came to the United States, mm-hmm. and that was the first time that he left Japan, and the first time he had been on an airplane, he was uh, 66 years old That's amazing. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And we took him around to places that, you know, mostly mostly young people, some mm-hmm. scientific types, but mostly young people, idealistic people, people who were the, the beginning of the environmental movement is 1979. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the beginning of the back, you know, the back to the land movement, and all these people. There's all this energy, right. and he was, and there's there was nothing like that in Japan. You know, the, the there was one. The second international permaculture conference was in Olympia, Washington. There was 750 people there. Wow! And he looked out and he said, "Oh my goodness!" Right. But then, you know what he told me at the when we were just leaving after the first trip. So. We were in Los Angeles. He wanted to come to Los Angeles to meet the parents, mm-hmm. and which was great. And it was—I mm-hmm. mean, I was so flattered, and they were too. But it was—you know—we had we had developed a very personal relationship, although it was strictly a, a master-disciple kind of thing, some okay. Asian thing. Yeah. But still, you know. Um, anyway, just as we're getting want to get on the plane, he was about to have to get on the plane. He said, "Hey, Larry." If I come to the United States again, um, please, please put me in front of audiences that don't agree with everything I said. <laughs> right. Because he Give loved to fight. Give me something to, to work fight. with here. He yeah. loved to fight. And, you know, personally, I don't. 
<laughs> so I'm saying that that's personal. Huh. I think it's a personal thing. It's just who you are. And that's interesting. Whatever. There's the circumstances. Well, here's what I wanted to ask you, too. So you're, when you're traveling around and, and when you were back on his farm in Japan, was, it, was he always speaking Japanese and you were always kind of translating? Yeah. or Always. Yeah. So when you were acting as, as his translator, too. Now, my Japanese wasn't that great. Okay. Because I picked it up. I, you know, I went to Japan. I was just going to Asia. I had no idea where to stay in Japan. Mm-hmm. I, I had studied Asians. I'd always been interested in Asia mm-hmm. for some reason. I did Asian studies when I was at Berkeley in the late 60s. And then when I graduated, I said, you know, I'm just going to go to Asia and see what it's like. And right. I didn't have any language training at all. In mm. fact, <laughs> I thought I was terrible at languages because I did poorly in Spanish in high school and I did poorly in Italian in college. Uh, one thing I th- found really interesting, too, is you talk about how uh, the Japanese kind of way of structuring uh, your speech is different. Like when he would talk about um, an idea, he might start with a central theme and then go off in- into a little uh, pedal and then come back to the central theme again, and then go off again and create this, I think you call it like a flower shape or yeah. something, which is so interesting that um, that the language and the thought process behind it can really inform how you talk about something. So it must have been really challenging for you as a translator to, to, um, to kind of reframe things for an English-speaking audience. Translation is difficult, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. But when you go from an Eastern language to a Western language, you got uh, you got a whole new level mm-hmm. of complication. So so um, anyway, what I was going to say before was that that um, my Japanese was good enough to sit down with the Rodales and the editors at, and uh, with Robert Rodale and the editors and do fine in a, in a conversation especially when it's about agriculture mm-hmm. but then in more technical conversations or if you go off into something like politics or sociology or economics i, I was completely lost hmm. uh, but so there were so whenever i could possibly whenever i could find a a, a japanese person a long hmm. way yeah who could who, to help me translate then right. oh i would really want to put him up there and then i could relax because it was kind of stressful oh it must have been exhausting too i know just yeah listening to another language can make you exhausted but then when even when but when i had a, just a regular japanese person doing the helping me with the translation then i would still have to constantly pipe in with the farming terminology because mm-hmm. I knew that better than most of the Japanese. Hmm. Hmm. You know? But then the, then the translation is a different, whole different challenge right. because you've got readers. The main problem is that you've got two different readers. You've got, on the one hand, the readers in Asia mm-hmm. are trying to say they're, they're, they're with the author. They are with them. Please, I'm, I'm listening. Tell hmm. me what you have to say. Hmm. And, and they will, if, if there's minor contradictions or, you know, they just want to hear the sincerity. What's the message in the sincerity? And that's, and a, West, that's a Japanese it's, thing or that's an Eastern it's thing? It's Asia. I think that would be Asia. So I mean, it's more of a respect. It's East Asia, so China and Japan. That's what I mainly know about. I'm okay. not, I don't know much about South and Southeast Asia. Okay. But, but it's, it's that, Japan and China. And, but 
with the Western readers, they, they've got this scientific mentality oh, where okay. if you can poke a hole anywhere in the mm -hmm. argument, mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. can disregard everything because mm -hmm. you can't trust the reader after that and you throw the book in the fire. Mm. That's actually, interesting. Yeah. So, so we had to really be careful with fact check and we had to explain mm. everything. And, and I was so lucky that on the One Straw Revolution, mm -hmm. the Rodale Press was the publisher and the editor that they assigned to the book was Wendell Berry. Right. The famous Wendell Berry. If, which, I know. That's another funny thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, that the, I didn't, anyway, it was wonderful working with him. Right. And he was, and he's a farmer, and he wanted to make sure that this book ended up in the hands of farmers and not just new age people, that it would be a spiritual, just be a spiritual. And a, oh, absolutely. I think that's the interesting religion, thing, too, is that, book. is the way I found, this is just my own little story here, but the way I discovered One Star Revolution is I was at the library. And I, I just started uh, my first teaching job, and I was gardening with kids. And I thought, well, I'll go to the library and try to educate myself on just basic gardening. And there it was in the gardening section, you know. Uh, it wasn't in the New Age section or the philosophy section, you know, sections where it could be. I mean, if you framed it that way, it could be in philosophy or Eastern studies or I don't know where, but... Um, but there I found it, and it just blew my mind. I mean, it just exploded my whole view and kind of spoke to me in a different way. So I think that was really probably one of the smartest editing decisions that could have been made at the time. Well, Wendell, when he read the manuscript, he just took the book up under his wing and he said, okay, let me help you get this published. And he was actually working as a consultant for Rodale Press at the time. And it makes so sense it because easy. he's a poet and he's a spiritual person. And so I, he must have, it must have resonated with him right away. Well, he, he knew what farmers were going to think when they read this mm -hmm. book. And, and the, the idea of just sowing, mixing all the vegetable seeds together and throwing them out in seed balls. Right. That, that's not going to work in most places in the United States. Mm -hmm. And he knew that farmers were going to look at that and they were going to say that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. and, and so we added this long footnote. And why and doesn't it work? It, I'm sorry to stop you, but why doesn't oh, it work? It doesn't rain because, because it goes a long time without rain. It's too arid. Uh. It's too arid. On the other hand, then he goes to... Um, uh, Fukuoka-san writes Sowing Seeds in the Desert, in which he's talking about using that exact technique mm -hmm. on a huge scale, scattering seeds from airplanes. To make so it rain, I'm, right? <laughs> I mean, to, well, to create the conditions. And they animation until they'll sit there until the rain comes. Right. And then they'll have, then with this little, it's like they've got a backpack or something with, a, with the stuff that they need to at least try to get started. Uh, you know, the seeds. Yeah, what so was it? One of the actually, quotes I wrote down about that was, uh, rain doesn't only fall from the sky, it also falls up from below. And I think he was talking about that idea that um, you can create the conditions to make it rain in the desert. Uh, well, yeah. And that's why <laughs> planting more trees and having more vegetation. Right. Now, we've, okay, right here where I live in southern Oregon, 
Mm-hmm. We do not. We used to get apparently, you know, looking at the statistics, a lot more thunderstorms and a lot more rain during the summer months. We're in a Mediterranean climate, so hmm. the rain comes in the winter, and much much less in the summer. Mm-hmm. California is Mediterranean, really extreme, and as you move farther north, it gets less extreme, but it's still rain in the winter, and not as much in the and not in the summer, but okay. still we had thunderstorms. And then when when the coast range was logged, mm-hmm. and the trees that were pumping out the moisture and putting it back into the atmosphere, which became rain, mm-hmm. those trees weren't able, weren't doing that anymore because they weren't there. Mm. And and those summer rains went away. Hmm. Those some thunderstorms. So he he correctly saw that it's not just it, it's 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 a the the water cycle it's it's a cycle and it's connected to how the earth also evaporates yeah and the role that plants play in that and that's what he was talking about overall and so and again and, it's incredible also, just to have that kind of wide wide screen vision of the geological you know history of the planet it's just incredible it's so visionary he was just amazing when when you see him walking in his orchard you know he just kind of blended in he was like a just an, an animal like a goat walking mm. around in there who was just living by instincts and eating the food that he needed and he just kind of knew how does it you know if you ask a horse how do you know or a wild uh, you know raccoon or a wild animal mm-hmm. or a wolf how do you know what to eat? Well, huh? Mm. Uh, what do you know? And and two in natural farming, everything's just kind of growing the way it naturally would in a food forest. So there's no straight rows, or there's no section of the garden that's all the cucumbers or whatever, right? So you have to have like, and I guess that's one of the things I struggle with with it. And maybe I'm not the only one as a you know, conventionally minded, relatively speaking, Westerner that, um, you know, uh, and this is honestly, it's probably my ego, you know, the, the ego part of it that says, well, to look like a good farmer, I need to have rows and I need to have organization and I need to be able to find the corn easily, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, just that idea that you just kind of wander around and find things, growing in strange places is so antithetical and and uh you know it doesn't jive with our our way of thinking you know everything about natural farming is as you said antithetical mm-hmm. or it's it's like a, a counterintuitive mm-hmm. you know because planting in rows to natural to, to to the point of view from natural farming is the most is the most unnatural, mm-hmm. the most uh, structured, contrived situation. Right. And and then especially, you know, then plowing and having exposed soil. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know what all the things that... So um, it's, it's not just that. It's the whole picture. And that has to do... Now we're coming back again to, to the difference between... The, the worldview of indigenous people, mm-hmm. or, and when I say indigenous people, that means the 100,000 years that people, that Homo sapiens have existed 
mm-hmm. on the earth and especially the last 50 or 60,000 years that they spread all 70,000 that they spread all over mm-hmm. the planet mm-hmm. and they're, the way they saw the world and the way they fit in and they would not do anything that would inhibit nature from being able to continue to provide what they needed Mm-hmm. And then, and why can't we remember is, that as a as a society? Like, why do we why do we need somebody like Fukuoka to to sort of point that out? Is it just poor memory or poor record keeping yeah. or we don't know history? Yeah. What is that? Well, it's partly um, it's a lot because our culture is trying to protect itself mm-hmm. by saying that this is human destiny. Our human destiny is. We must accomplish great things. We must grow. We must be a civilization to the universe and beyond, mm-hmm. and that kind of and shit. science and science and, is the and science. Well, that's and I'd love to talk about that, but mm-hmm. uh, too if we have time. But um, but it's just progress. It's progress and innovation progress. and using our intellect to to not, and I. But I think there's also there's this perception that. For the rest of human history, all the primitive indigenous human history, that people were struggling and that it was hard and that, uh, you know, that somehow we're creating, you know, a more easy life for ourselves. Well, we're actually, yes. Um, When, if you ask somebody, and this is me too, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not... I, I mean, I I grew up in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and went to public school, and I had the same background, the same training, and living in. And so, when you, if you ask me, if you would have asked me, mm-hmm. what was life like for human beings before civilization, the right. great civilization, I would have said the same thing. You know, there's people living in caves, mm-hmm. you know, starving all the time. Wandering around, hoping to find something to eat, and right. and constantly afraid of animals eating them. Right. This is a myth, which is kind mm-hmm. of perpetrated by mm-hmm. our culture mm-hmm. to erase. Well, uh, these are my words mm-hmm. to erase how beautiful the life was before. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you you could definitely argue that <clears throat> life expectancy may be longer now, and certainly we have population growth is much <laughs> more you know much more successful now but that doesn't mean that those are necessarily um you know markers of success right if you look at it well that this way. is like a joy ride it's you know it's like right you know high school kids on the prom night and they're just going Woo-hoo, let's go. <laughs> hot tubs you know, right? it, but but the modern culture has decided that natural law does not apply to us mm-hmm. because gods. Mm-hmm. And we decide who lives and who dies. Like, for example, wolves. Wolves right. are pain in the ass. Let's kill them all. Right, right. Now, this is weird. Yeah. Uh, or if there's great white sharks that are threatening the beaches, we need to get rid of the sharks. Kill yeah. them all. Yeah. Kill them all. They're pain in the ass and the fields and just spray them and get rid of all the insects. Mm -hmm. And this kind of mentality, human beings are the only ones that do that. Mm -hmm. But it didn't happen before. This is a new thing. All of this thinking is new. It's a cultural thing. It's not a human thing. This is not 
who human beings are. This is what our culture is, in my opinion. Well, in, in your book, you talk about um, science always looking for the further separation. Like, how do we further subdivide and make categories in science and name things and and have that kind of organization, you know? And, um, and I feel like that's echoing so much of Fukuoka's life's work as well, that that the more your intellect becomes the driving force, the less, um, what am I trying to say? The less, uh, the less... Uh, the farther removed you get from the real world. Right, <laughs> reality, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry to put words in your mouth. It's just... No, no, I, I needed that. I've been there trying to figure out that same exact thing. And I'm going to spend about 10 years on that sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can so see that. Figure out something so simple. <laughs> right. We were talking about his kind of um, maverick style when he was traveling around. But I think you said in your book that um, he was vilified in Japan. I think you were talking about Japan, that he was vilified not for being wrong, but for being different. And yep. I wonder, do you know how he's viewed now in Japan, in his native land? I yeah. mean, is he well, respected like he is everywhere else? He was vilified because he was practicing a form of agriculture that was not sanctioned by modern culture. Mm-hmm. So that was a problem. He mm-hmm. needed to be, I mean, if, if his, if they had done studies and if blah, 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 and if he had been, if it had been shown as he showed, as mm-hmm. he actually showed, that natural farming was at least as productive mm-hmm. as industrial scientific farming with the chemicals and so forth. And he was able to get, so he was able to get yields comparable or better, as he did, to the neighbors, but he didn't use machinery. Right. He didn't use fossil fuel. He didn't uh, uh, create pollution, and the soil improved every year. Right. and all of those things were the opposite for the neighbors, then it would prove that, you know, the, the, well, the modern culture is trying to say we are the only possible way for humanity. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that would have shown that not only is it not the only way, mm-hmm. it's not even the best way. But it takes and time. And actually to, it's the worst way. And it takes time for him to get those yields, right? It's not something that happens in a year or two. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's, yeah. some, that's some patience. Real but patience. But I got there about the time, by, by the time I got there, that had happened. He had done that. I got there in about 1972 or three. Mm-hmm. You know? But Incredible. the neighbors, boy, the neighbors, they didn't want to hear about this. They they ignored him, mm-hmm. and he said he was vilified threat. by the establishment. But mm-hmm. even his neighbors did, didn't give him the time of day. Mm-hmm. Of course, he didn't give them the time of day. Right to be fair, right. <laughs> but he was living up the mountain. He didn't even. Uh, <laughs> and meanwhile, his his oranges or his uh, whatever citrus he's sending, he's shipping all Mandarin over the country. Oranges. Mandarin oranges. Yeah, they said they were like the best tasting. They were definitely the best. He could have sold. 20 times more than he sold. Everybody knew they were the best, mm-hmm. and he insisted that they be sold. He sold them mostly to the cities because he felt 
sorry for people that maybe had never tasted the flavor right. of a naturally grown, uh, natural of naturally grown produce. Right. Which comes out of soil system. that has all the micronutrients. The soil is and all totally the, healthy. Mm-hmm. The trees are healthy. Mm-hmm. It's got access to all the different micronutrients that are not available to industrially grown mm-hmm. citrus. And he had children too, right? So um, do you know, are they at all carrying on his legacy? Yeah. or Yeah. What's you the know, story the way with it is in Asia. The way it is in Asia is that, or Asia, I say, East Asia, because that's mm-hmm. what I know. Again, China and Japan, essentially. Um, the oldest son will take over the farm. Okay. You know, and, and it's a really serious thing. They, they, people don't just sell the farm or this. No, the family keeps connected to the land, and so hmm. it's 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 so for he is uh, Fukuoka-san had four girls and one boy. Mm. And Masato, I met him. He's a cool guy. Mm-hmm. And he ran the farm for 20 or 25 years while Fukuoka-san was, while well, his sensei was going off around the world. Oh, okay. I wondered that because, yeah, he must have now had somebody son, he trusted back there. Yeah, and now his son, the grandson, is running the farm. Oh, fantastic. And it's yeah. the same, it's the actual same same land, same farmland? Same land, same Almost everything, but it's not quite for. They're not teaching. They're not uh, you know they mm-hmm. they have they they have respect for what happened there, mm. and for for the for the sensei, um, they're doing a little more organic. It's completely organic. No chemicals have been used. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. About forty percent of the rice fields have been plowed. Hmm. It's for just, and I'm not sure the reasons or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, but the um, um, at least everything is still maintained organically. Mm-hmm. And have I'm you been back there? Have you? Been, no, I haven't been back there since mm-hmm. 1975. Can you believe that? <laughs> I didn't. I never had the money to go back there. Sure. It's such a simple life. No, I understand. And then once I had my, you know, started a family, and yeah, then it gets it complicated. Like, <laughs> like that money. But I, you know, it's, it was complicated. But sure. anyway, I'm I'm almost sure that I'm going to go back this spring. Oh, that's Finally. great! That's great. I know. And then, Maybe and then I'll you'll be able people. to write the uh, write the revised version of One Straw Revolutionary to kind of be the addendum or something. Well, we're thinking maybe of having it filmed at least because yeah. there's a couple of those, those my friends who, you know, those six people I said, who, yeah. there's six or seven people that were there. I'm still in touch with maybe three or four of them. Yeah. And that's so great. maybe we can do a reunion there and film it, and that would be pretty awesome. Oh, that's so All cool. I'm trying to do is keep the, keep the thing going so that this understanding continues to be a force in the world. This is. We can turn everything around using natural farming. It's it's uh, it's right there. It takes a shift in consciousness mm-hmm. from the using the intellect, control, and power over nature mm-hmm. to a, a, a intuitive understanding. And Fukuoka said, when you approach the land, first ask. How can I serve nature? Then, how can I, you know, live here and survive and have my needs balanced? Now, Mary Reynolds right. had, a, I think, an even more eloquent way of saying that. Mm. 
as I mentioned before, she said, ask the land what it wants to become, what it needs to become, hmm. what is its destiny, mm-hmm. and then join your destiny and your needs and, and uh, uh, desires. Join with nature. And, and just do it together. That's so great. Well, um, I think that's a really beautiful way to kind of wrap things up here. And, and uh, you know, you literally brought a huge part of this movement from Japan. I mean, you, you brought it over here and translated it to English. And, and it's really become part of our, part of the permaculture kind of, you know the backbone of the of the of the movement and uh what you've done is really is really incredible and i just want to say thank you for doing that in the first place and um and uh it it pops up all the time in fact uh, one of my previous interviews is with a filipino rice farmer and he came to visit the farm that i work at, at here in chicago yeah. and um his wife was doing most of the talking and she was really warm and chatty and he was kind of standing in the background with his arms crossed and I could tell like, you know, he's thinking something. I just can't, I had a hard time breaking the ice with him. And then we started talking about his rice farm and he was still a little bit standoffish and, but he said something about rice farming that reminded me of Fukuoka and I said, Oh, it sounds a lot like One Straw Revolution. And I mean, his eyes lit up and he smiled and his body language loosened up and all of a sudden we were friends, you know. And I just thought that's a that's a beautiful thing. Fukuoka's understanding is now, it's, it's a worldwide mm-hmm. and especially in India and Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and like the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And and this was a dream that we had mm-hmm. uh, back in this is 1973, I guess, or four, when when the One Straw Revolution came out in uh, Japanese, mm-hmm. and we saw the book, and we were sitting up in one of those huts that you were describing, mudwalled hut, mm-hmm. around the fire, and said, you know, we've got to translate this book into English because the people because we knew what was going on out there with the environmental movement and the people wanting to they, they, this was right a message that was ready to be received but not yet in Japan mm-hmm. and he was to be completely ignored we said well let's translate it into English we'll get it back to the United States and and find a publisher mm-hmm. and then We'll get this very important message out, and so now it's like forty years later, mm-hmm. and to, to see what's happened, and it's so gratifying. It's amazing, um, and 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 I just can't believe how lucky I've been in my life to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Now I maintain a website for Fukuoka-san that has a, a lot of photos of his farm. And it has uh, articles and, and a great bio. Mm-hmm. One straw revolution dot net. One straw revolution dot net. And I have to ask one one other thing. You mentioned that um, at some point Fukuoka had something called the Dharma Wheel Theory of Flux in all things, and oh it was like goodness. a visual. I think it was like a like a sign or like a poster. And I just got to know: does that thing still exist? Is that out there you in know, the world somewhere? 
there are so many things about Fukuoka that Fukuoka-san that he wrote, mm-hmm. or that have existed or do exist. That that I mean, it's so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, somebody listening yeah. should There's make actually a, a physical form yeah. of the Dharma wheel, because mm-hmm. the Dharma wheel is mentioned in the sowing seeds in the desert. Mm-hmm. It's a very, I mean, it's yeah. a, the deepest levels that he gets to in any of his books that I've seen. Mm-hmm. But I have never seen that um, portrayed in a physical form, like in a poster or something. Well, Is there such a thing? Yeah, somebody should make it, if not. So oh, uh, okay. that'll be our personal challenge to listeners okay. to make one and send it to us, because I think it should exist if it doesn't already. But... um yeah. Anyway, Larry, it's been a it's been a real treat, and I just want to say thanks for taking some time to talk sure. about your work. And uh, you've got a lot going on uh, in your own uh, work and, and helping other writers and going to India soon. And it's and I'm assuming all that's on on your web or they can find out about that from from the yeah. And I've also well. met wonderful people along the way, all along the way, including. Bill Wilson and Becky at uh, Midwest Permaculture. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give them a hello at the end if they ever listen to this. Maybe that'll bring a smile to their face. I feel very close to those two people. They're wonderful people, and um, mm-hmm. you know, it's and that they do, they also stress the lineage. You know, the way that the permaculture movement has been kind of passed down through people. You know, and it's that mm-hmm. relationship that that really makes things work so great talking to you you too Larry. all right thanks a lot man and i hope to talk to you again soon take care all right bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening that was so fun to talk to larry it was really an honor to um, hear his story and he's doing a lot of cool things workshops all over the world so do check him out at his website onestrawrevolution.net and um you can contact me uh, on Twitter at Farm on Dharma. That's Farm on D H A R M A. You can email me at Dharma on the Farm at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast with like minded folks. Find Farm on on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're looking for sponsors right now to keep this little boat afloat. So if you're interested, please hit us up. Until next time. Follow the seeds, follow the sun, and farm on.